This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And can you believe it, uh, Jonathan? Trump is in trouble again. But what, what, what did he do now? He said that the president of France's wife is very attractive and good looking. Wow. That, I, that, that I, I, bastard. I, it's, 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 and the level of, of hatred and misogyny complimenting someone on looking good. So you can say, grab him by the pussy, that's bad. Okay, we sort of agree. And now you say, oh, you're quite good looking, that's bad too. Where do you win? What did you say? But you just Macron's, ignore them. You can't say anything, but, but it seems like Macron's doing a, a good job uh, in terms of, he's, he's been quite strategic. Not, not bad, I must be honest. I think a lot of, a lot of the people who voted for him are like, you're getting on very well with Trump, which is a bit concerning, but he had quite a good, uh. But he did troll him on the, on the climate thing quite, in, in quite right. a funny way. In, in a good way. And he said a very interesting, uh, speech at the G20 about African problems. Oh, they um, also lost their minds about that. Right. How, yes. how throwing money at, at structural, political and social issues won't. But, but let's, he, he said, he said that when people are having seven or eight children throwing money at them, he, that was the issue that, that right. raised. But his, the Amish have seven or eight children as well, but no one throws money at them. <laughs> and they do quite is, well. This, this is a very good point. So, it's, so it's a cultural if thing. If you're tuning in for the first time to the show, you'll hear that uh, we are not afraid of uh, any topics. There are no holy cows, and today is no different uh, in us inviting a Muslim reformer onto the show. Indeed, and um, we I have a feeling we're going to learn quite a lot. Uh, some aspects that we would never have thought of before. So, I'm quite excited to speak to her. And Jonathan, would you please introduce her? Our guest this week is uh, Shireen Kudosi. She is the Director of Muslim Matters with America Matters. She's also a writer and has published in The Federalist, The New York Times, uh, Women in the World, on Being, The Hill, and among others, uh, all, of, uh, all of those publications, among others. Um, she's been named one of the top North American Muslim reformers. And Shireen is passionate about individualism, free speech, and feminism, which uh, means it's no surprise that she's on our show. Uh, thanks so much, Shireen, for joining us. The morning, your time. Uh, the afternoon, our time. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Right. So do you want to give us, uh, our, our listeners, a bit of a background in terms of your history and where you come from? Yeah. So my mom is Pakistani. My dad is from Afghanistan. And I was born in Pakistan. They went to Pakistan after escaping during the coup. So there was this whole tumultuous experience around why they ended up in Pakistan. And so I grew up hearing stories of the coup and the revolution and, you know, just these immigration stories that started before I even was born. When I was in Pakistan, uh, we, we immigrated to Iran for seven months when I was five years old, then to Germany for two years as a refugee, and then to the States when I was seven. So I've had this experience of living in what literally felt like three different worlds at, you know, as a child and as a refugee and as a, an immigrant over and over again. And so I grew up with that experience. And then when 9-11 happened, I was in law school and I just thought that this isn't really my path. I need to be, you know, you ask a lot of questions. And when you start realizing that you don't have answers to these questions, you start asking more questions. And then I left law school to pursue this sort of rabbit hole of theology and uh, studied pretty much everything I could get my hands on, and of course, including Islam. And from there, I realized there is a desperate need for people to speak out about their experiences, about what they're studying within the faith, and just ask really powerful questions. And that's how we arrived at where I am today. So, yeah, it, it is quite interesting that you are um, a, a first-generation immigrant uh, to the U.S. So if you currently you are you still identify as a Muslim? Yes, a Sufi Muslim. Right. So what is what is the big, not the problem itself, but within Islam itself, there is a lot of turmoil at the moment. And if you had to just clarify that in, in very simple terms, what is, the, what is the big problem within Islam at the moment? There's two problems that I would peg it down to. One is the issue of identity. And so for the large majority of Muslims, we 
we see this label Muslim as preceding uh, nationality or even more importantly, preceding human beings. You know, we are human. We are, I am Shireen or I am the sense of I before I am Muslim or American or anything else. And so the large conflict that arises within Islam or within Muslims in Islam is that we have this obsession with identity. And so everything becomes this hyper hyper uh, Muslimness. That's one thing. The other thing is that we don't genuinely understand our faith. Very few Muslims have actually read the Quran. More importantly, read it in their own native tongue so they can understand it. And then more importantly than that is actually studied it. So I read the Quran four times and that's not nearly enough times. You need to pair it with a real deep study of Islamic sciences, Islamic history, psychology, sociology. And so only once you've really invested in yourself as a scholar on some level, can you begin to understand, okay, the big picture of okay, where are we at? What's going on? And so when it comes back to reform, this isn't something new. This has been going on since day one. So when Muhammad was alive, there was a sort of a duality between the two houses of Islam. So there's two versions of Islam then and there. If it was a static faith, why did that shift so much? And the fact that it shifted shows that there is movement within the faith, whether we call it progress or uh, you know, disorientation, there is movement within the faith. And after Muhammad died, within the first hundred years, we had these wars. The first wars among Muslims, the major wars were against other Muslims. And so from that, there was always this sort of power struggle of uh, that paired politics with religion, which is really where Islamism comes from, that conflates this religion. So it's supposed to be a very simple thing. Religion is supposed to be very simple, very personal. It's not for me to dictate to you what religion is or what your value system should be. The fact is that because we don't understand our faith, we don't even realize that the problems that are existing today aren't really that unique. They're just a continuation of what's been going on for 1400 years. So being being a, a scholar and, and having studied the Quran as intently as you have, what are the big misconceptions about Islam that perhaps the West has or perhaps that Muslims themselves have? Because I, I, just seeing you here, I notice you're not wearing a, a, a burqa, for example. you speaking to two men outside of the world. Uh, traditionally, the stereotype is that you know women aren't allowed to actually do much within the faith. Well, first I'd, yeah, first I'd say I'm not a scholar in the sense that a sheikh or an imam would be. So I personally study the faith and I personally really value scholarship. And I feel like that's something that can be privately done without the sort of uh, system of going through formal school and whatnot. So anyone can uh, work towards being a scholar or, or take a scholarly mindset. But I feel the fundamental problem right now, it, it, and this touches on everything, including why I look the way I do and why I'm sitting here with you, is that even critics of Islamism who are completely right in their criticisms, what people do is they confuse the medieval scholarship of Islamism. So when Islamism was in this sort of give or take golden age, there was this ex immense exchange of ideas. Some of those ideas were great. Some of those ideas were completely heinous and, and backwards, but there was that exchange. And so while that's a beautiful thing and while we should completely have that today on some level, be able to have this exchange of ideas without saying, oh, well, you're not a real Muslim. The problem back then is that those ideas became codified into the faith. So when you see Sharia law, for example, and Sharia law is a perfect example of that. Sharia, when it was originated, was supposed to be just a pathway, it's supposed to be something really beautiful. Like Sharia could have been a, a current in the sea and you could take any different current to get to the path you want or get to the destination you want to get to. What happened is over time, every single legal ruling became wrapped into the faith. And so it's a really, it's a really hard thing of now, instead of having a really simple sort of seed idea, you've got the matrix. You're supposed to figure out, you know, what's what and what's going in what direction. And that's ridiculous. And that's one of the reasons we have a lot of the issues we have today on both sides, on the people who are quote anti-Islam and the people who are Islamist as well. It's the same problem. We'll get to the sort of um, reform side of things in a bit, but why do you think it is, because you've now mentioned Sharia and, and, and a bit more about the history, but why do you think it is that that a lot of the religion, and certainly from the pupils that we see, it seems that a lot of Muslims around the world are on the extreme side of things. And that's not to say that the majority are terrorists or, or even um, are pro-terrorism, although there, are, there is a disturbingly large number um, of, of actual individuals in that group. Um, but 
for example, Sharia law, I think the Pew research shows eight or nine hundred million Muslims would be pro Sharia law being the law of, of, of any given land that they would live in. Why, why do you think uh, things have moved so far to an extreme? It's a really good question. I feel like the real simple answer to that is it really comes down to let's define extremism or let's define fanaticism. So I always say, and I think you'd agree with this, is that the extremist isn't the person who, you know, blows up, uh, blows themselves up or presses the bomb trigger or pulls a grenade. The extremist is a person who hosts an extremist idea that only mm. their their interpretation is the right interpretation, their way is the right way. And in that sense, we have a much bigger number than just the jihadis and just the Islamists. We have the, the dormant number of Muslims who, through complacency, through fear, through whatever the reason may be, aren't waking up and realizing that they really need to take uh, a side on this, that you can't, you can't be American, you can't be Western, you can't be uh, a humanitarian or, or embrace universal values while at the same time rigidly, obsessively holding on to this idea that you've not even had the chance to crack open yet. So I feel like that's really where the problem comes from is this, it goes back to this lack of self-exploration, which is where reform comes in. So reform for me personally, isn't about hitting you on the head and telling you you're wrong or shaming you. It's about cultivating a dialogue and asking really, really beautiful questions so that we can start thinking about these things openly. All right. I mean, I do understand what, what your your definition of reform, and, and, and there's quite a few people within the faith who are trying to do so. If if you had to look at the at the contemporary problems that the the West is facing, uh, Europe, for example, the immigration issues or all the terrorism issues in in France and England, in particular, a lot of the debate is. Were they really Muslim or were they really doing this in the name of Islam? Uh, is that the wrong question to ask? Or can we just say the interpretation of Islam made them do what they did? And how do we know if that interpretation under the, which they had was correct or incorrect? A couple of answers to that. And it's a really good question. First of all, if someone says they're Muslim, they're Muslim. If they've taken the Shahada, that's all it takes to be a Muslim. So when you convert to Islam, for example, and that's a really great example, you don't have to study the faith. You don't have to sort of go through this gauntlet. All you have to do yeah. is have an intent and say the line and boom, you're done. So it's so easy to get in, yet now people are conveniently saying, well, it's not real Islam. Well, but let's look at real Islam. So when we look at interpretation, when we go back to Muhammad, there is a duality in the faith. And so if we look at the, the silver lining of the duality is that it allows for adaptation and innovation to your circumstances. If we look at the dark cloud that that duality is, is that it justifies the extremist acts that are being committed. So it comes back to when it comes to immigration, it comes back to the question of value. So when I speak with Europeans, and especially the average European uh, person who you know goes to work just like any other American would, has their job, they don't really necessarily know the crux of these issues. What I've seen over time is just a, a denial that this is this is Islam on any level. And then as the attacks in Europe started increasing, the refugee problems started increasing, I saw a really beautiful shift. And that shift was, how can this happen? So there's confusion now. So rather than having denial from the sort of masses of, you know, the European citizenry, you've got this sort of confusion as to how can these people act this way? This isn't our values. Whenever we hear stories of FGM in, in Europe or we hear honor killing specifically in Europe, the questions I get asked is, how can this happen? And so there's a there's a conflict in understanding the value systems. The value systems that the West has are not the value systems at large that are cultivated within the Muslim world. Even though seeds for those values are embedded within the faith, the large majority of the population hasn't allowed that to, to fertilize in any level. So what you have is you have a cultural problem where two different sets of people have two completely different ideas and value systems, except this side doesn't want to believe this side doesn't believe the same thing they believe. And it's completely ludicrous. Okay. So is, is that where the reform um, sort of uh, answer comes, comes, comes into play? Is that in your opinion, does reform uh, mean that, you're trying to get the people on those extremes who, who view the religion in one specific way to understand that the religion can change and move, progress, I suppose, uh, into, you know, past where ISIS would like it to be, which is sort of 700 AD. Uh, 
and 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 into cur- current day. Yeah, the number one demographic, the number one target audience for reform, for the kind of work that progressive Muslims do, even if they don't fall in, under the label of reform, is the the average Muslim mindset. So that the Islamists, you know, you have to question, are you ever going to win the Islamist lot? The people who believe that uh, church and state should be married, you're probably never going to win them over. Okay, move on. Who's next? The next are the, the people who are open to secular ideas and secular values, but they're not really aware of uh, the sort of hairline issues and the hairline cracks within Islamism. They don't even know what Islamism is. So that's one group of people within the Muslim community that we have to target and reach out to and, and sort of bring on our side. The larger end goal target, in my opinion, is the average Muslim who is, you know, in the most far-flung corners of the earth, maybe he doesn't even know how to read or write, maybe doesn't have any sort of uh, academic experience or access to resources the way that we do. And all they know is, okay, well, this is what God said. And that is the ultimate goal is to be able to reach every single person and talk to them in a language that they understand, whether it is secular values, whether it is theology, whether it is uh, their own personal interests, economic interests, whatever it is, we have to talk to them in their language. So is reform a question of getting Muslims back to the original ideas of Islam or is it about evolving Islam currently to a place that makes it a bit more not secular perhaps but a bit more uh, western I can't speak for everyone who says they're a reformer but for me it's both for me it goes back to understanding the if you're a person of faith you go back to understanding what the message was supposed to be how did that message get lost so if the Quran is you know it wasn't the word of God it wasn't it didn't come down from the heavens as a word of God. It was, it was uh, revealed over time through a messenger. So I think we have to go back to the messenger and say, okay, well, where did this person sort of mess up? And, and really be able to look at that, which I know is going to probably get me killed one day, but that's really what we have to do at this point. And the more people who say it, the less uh, odd and bizarre it sounds. And it becomes a real question of why can't we study where the message derailed? You know, what did it mean for for the Prophet Muhammad to have the first 12 years of Islam be peaceful and then evolve into this sort of violent, warmongering state. And so we need to be able to look at that. And that's a conversation everyone needs to have together. It's not the the platform of just one person. And then it goes to ultimately evolving it for a future world. And that means being able to shed the the, the skin of identity, being able to shed the skin of label Muslim, label Islam, and look at each other as human beings and look at really humanitarian values. What what in Islam aligns with the future world of people and where we want to be versus what doesn't? And if it doesn't, then we need to gut it. And that doesn't mean changing the Quran. That means really using our intellect and being able to look at something without having a heart attack or a protest or, a, you know, calling for a fatwa just because someone has asked a question or made a statement. You, you make a very interesting point. Um in terms of individualism and collectivism, we we talk about that a lot on the show because we talk about political aspects as well, and we think a large problem of of where the left has gone wrong is essentially collectivizing groups. Um, and it's interesting that you put um, Islam into that sort of uh, box in in that the religion in itself tends to collectivize people instead of see them as individuals. Um, I don't know if you listened. Uh, I listened to the uh, Sam Harris podcast with Sarah Hader. Uh, she made an interesting point. She doesn't buy into reform. Obviously, Sam Harris does. Uh, you know, he's he's obviously quite friendly with with uh, Majid Nawaz. Uh, but she made an interesting point that she doesn't buy into reform. She supports it, but she doesn't think it'll work. And her reasoning was that, uh, unlike Christianity and Judaism, which was brought up as a as a reference point. Uh, Christianity and Judaism come from the Bible. The Bible is essentially not the work of God. It's the work of man. Um, and whereas the Quran is, is the spoken word of God, uh, the, the whole Quran is the spoken word of God. She, she compared the Bible more to be similar to um, the Hadith, uh, you know, the scriptures, uh, whereas the Quran, there's, there's no equivalent in Christianity or Judaism, for example, in her opinion. And so she felt that, Convincing people to change what is the word of God uh, would be impossible. I'd have to disagree with her because. Great. I, I want to hear your, your view exactly for that reason. 
The promise is it's the word of God. I mean, where do you get the idea that it's the word of God? If you believe it's the word of God, it's because everyone says it's the word of God, which goes back to 99 other things that you know Muslims believe today, uh, which aren't true. So, so the fact that you believe it's the word of God, you know, it, it's so frustrating because you're you and I and I and I love the work that Sarah does. But when you accept these premises and you build an entire structure on these premises, and then you devastate potential in other areas to solve these problems based on these false premises, you're not doing anyone any favors. So when you say it's the word of God, it's because you don't understand that it's actually not the word of God. So if you actually study the faith and you study the theology, you study the way that the Quran was treated in the early years and the way the message was treated, it actually, no one back then believed it was literally the word of God. So that's that's an assumption that's been formulated and accepted and regurgitated over time, but it's actually not what original Islam was about. It wasn't, you know, this ha moment where the word of God comes down. And so when we look at Christianity and Judaism, yeah, we have the monotheistic tradition and, and we've got, we've got discrepancies in terms of how some of the stories are laid out. Garden of Eden Genesis is a perfect example of, if I had to, if I had to agree with Sarah, I would say, that's where the crack comes in. It's not that it's the word of God. It's the way that these stories are treated. And so when we look at the Garden of Eden story, the Genesis story, the biggest difference in in the Garden of Eden story is that in the other traditions, it was Adam who was allowed to name his animals, name, name the dominion and name things, which is a powerful act of uh, individualism and possession and, and being able to think freely for yourself. But in the Quran, if you look at the Genesis story, it's God who tells Adam what each thing is. So it takes away the person's ability to, uh, to self-identify, to self-determine. And I feel like that is goes back to the idea of collectivism and individualism. So in Islam, the ideal, which I don't know if we're ever going to get to, but the ideal is to be able to do what we should all be able to do in, in every society. It's not this pitted division of individual versus collective. And like, why can't we have both? Why can't we, uh, you know, why can't we come together through a sort of balance in both? And that the individual, the strength in individual makes the collective stronger. So the individual can move into the collective as we are today. We're, we're a collective, but we're able to move out and we're still able to move back in. So this sort of free movement is really, really important. I feel like that's where religion fails. And that's really where even modern culture in many aspects fails. It's because this obsession with uh, group group thought, uh, you know, this sort of uh, mutual identity that in its nature crushes the individual. I, I think we agree with that. I think that's quite a, a good point that you do make. Can I just go through three practices that are commonly um, what you call affiliated to Islam in a way, mm-hmm. namely uh, the, the burqa, all the niqab, mm-hmm. uh, FGM, and something like honor killings, for example. What is your mm-hmm. opinion on all three? And are they Islamic in the sense that you... Th- are they Islamic at all, or is it a misconception, or is it just a strand of Islam that should be done away with? It's Arab tribal culture. We're looking at Arab tribal culture, which isn't... It's not just limited to those three issues. If you look at Arab tribalism... And you look at the, it's not just what happened, you know, 500,000 years ago. We're dealing with it now. We're dealing with it in the most simple, and I'll get to the three specifically, but we're dealing with it in the most simple way in just language. We just had Ramzan, so the month of fasting, right? And look at the way that people are now talking about Ramzan, this holy month of fasting. Rather than calling it Ramzan, it's Ramadan. Instead of saying Ramzan uh, Mubarak, which is the way that I grew up as a South Asian person, now we're calling it Ramadan Kareem. Instead of uh, Seheri, which is the morning time where you wake up and you eat something, it's called Sarhur. And it's these little, little things where the Arab tribalism and their influence, the, the petrodollar influence is is shaping how we even talk about things as Muslims today. So fast forward another hundred years, unless we really start challenging these ideas, and and that goes back to the way that women dress, the embrace of the hijab, the embrace of the burqa, that isn't a really pretty picture another hundred years from now. Forget the West. Look at how what it's doing to uh, Southeast Asia. Look at what's doing to Asia itself. That's that's a really tr- scary trajectory. When we go to issues like the burqa, the burqa is, again, it's not part of original Islam. So I wrote a piece for Gatestone Institute on the hijab, for example, which is sort of like burqa stage one. And 
if we look at where that came from, right? Work on stage one. Yeah, if we look fantastic. at like where that <laughs> if we look at like where that came from, it came from the culture. And it was it wasn't something that was mandated in the Quran. If you look at the Quran, if you ask someone, well, where does it actually say you have to cover? It never specifically says it says something cover about modesty. Head. Yeah, it's modesty. Like, don't have your boobs hanging out. You know, like, that's modesty. That's simple things like that. Um, when it comes to the, the, the Quran, the Quran has really, and, and I think you would agree, the Quran has really, like, obsessive need for detail over civilian and military conduct, right? Like, you can't do this, you can't do this. But it doesn't say anything that's specifically about covering your hair. It's more of just be modest, you know, don't, don't, whatever, like, lay it all hanging out. And that's it. And that's for that time in that period. So, the other issue with with that is that we had this unfortunate culture of um, slavery and a lot of concubines and a lot of slavery. And so that's something Muslims largely don't want to discuss today. But that's kind of where the entire concept of hijab came up. And if you look at the Gatestone Institute piece that I wrote on hijab and look at the different sort of uh, conversations that scholars have had about it, one of the reasons that women started covering their hair is so that they could identify as being different from the slave women who were being harassed, who were open to being harassed, who were who were available for the surrounding men. Now, if we look at how women wear hijab today and the sort of reasons they wear it today, and that's not to say that this is everyone, because I have a lot of good friends who wear the hijab and I completely 100% support their right to wear the hijab and they look beautiful, like more power to them. But the larger idea and this is the hashtag that came up on Twitter, I think, a week or two ago was uh, something about if you are covered, you're dignified. It's a sort of reverse slut shaming of like, oh, if you're not if you don't look like me, you're you're not dignified. And that's the problem with these practices of controlling how you what you wear and how you look. If you want to wear something as a woman, go wear it. But the minute you're wearing it because you think you're going to be better than somebody else, I think that's where the issue comes in. But to FGM. Going back to that, that is not a, that is not anything to do with Islam whatsoever. That is 100% a cultural practice. So when we look at the Quran, I think it's Surah 4 verse 119, if I can recall correctly, but it said, you cannot change what Allah has created. So what Allah has, what God has created, you don't have the right to go and change or mutilate. So when we look at FGM, and that's the, the brutal tearing and cutting of the clitoris, and that completely annihilates a woman or an emerging woman's ability to feel that is changing fundamentally changing irreversibly changing what god has created so that is the highest source doctrine in islam you can't do that now there's other arguments i've heard within sharia from other women who have said that there is a there is a verse that talks about a woman's right to to some sort of uh some sort of remedy if her husband isn't pleasing her. That's what I've heard. I haven't studied that myself. But if that's the case as well, then we all know for a fact that the number one way a woman receives sexual pleasure is through the clitoris in in intercourse. And so if you remove that, you've removed her entire ability to feel and be satisfied. So I would think that's a problem. But largely it comes down to this culture of controlling a woman's sexuality, controlling what they think is promiscuity, if she feels anything. And that's a problem because crushing a woman's right to feel is just another way of silencing her and and snuffing out her voice. And so as liberals in a Western state, when we champion human rights and we are so, we are so fiercely uh, protective of freedom of speech, well, removing a woman's ability to enjoy herself or communicate sexually is the most primal form of communication that has been violated against and is suffocated. So why wouldn't we champion that issue as well, which I would love to see more left-wingers, more liberals coming forward and championing that issue. Yeah, it's... And it, then the, yeah, sorry, just to no, in quickly, it's, um, it's very refreshing to hear a real feminist. Thank you. <laughs> because, uh, you, you, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to say these things uh, if you're a third-wave feminist. You, you, you can't... It's Islamophobic, so-called. To, to, to say and these that's, things. that's the thing. You just said, you said exactly what everyone says, right? And I'm so glad you said it because it gives me a chance to dig into this. So that's exactly what they say. They say it's Islamophobic. And that is such a load of crock because the minute you say it's Islamophobic, you're recognizing this as a part of Islam. You're legitimizing these barbaric, brutal, backwards practices as being part of a faith. That is actually the most Islamophobic or anti-Islam thing you could say is to make these lazy 
uh, these absolutely lazy statements that clump a practice with a faith and you don't want to have a conversation about it just because you think you're going to offend someone. But what you do when you say it's Islamophobic or, uh, you know, it's offensive is that you're justifying that, okay, this thing and this thing actually are the same when they're not. You're not doing this any, not you, but the larger uh, leftist uh, audience, they're not doing this any favors. And so going to the third question was honor killings, right? So when we look at honor killings, it all ties in together. This culture of a possession that the woman is not an individual, the entire crushing of the individual for the sake of the collective. All these ideas circulate around sort of a tribe society and the tribal society is very, very uh, possessive in the sense that it needs to sort of control and order and maintain. And so when we look at honor killings, I recently went on the Michelle Malcolm show talking about honor killings and we all understand, okay, what happens with honor killings? Why it happens? I think we can agree that, okay, it's one moment where a family member kills uh, a member of their family, a girl usually, because they feel that they, she has shamed them in some way, whether it's living a Western lifestyle or having a boyfriend or premarital sex or even marrying someone she chooses, God forbid. But the entire, the entire issue of honor killings is much bigger than that. Now, and I really want to blow that up. Same thing with FGM. I want to be able to look at, okay, it's not just the moment where someone's cut. It's not just the moment where someone's killed. It is the entire surrounding sort of orbiting culture that from the moment a girl is born or sometimes even a boy, the moment they're born, they're indoctrinated into the system where you don't, can I cuss? You don't fucking exist. You don't exist. Okay. And that is the problem here is that from the moment that you're born, you're told you don't exist. You don't matter. Your entire identity, your entire purpose is for this larger unit. And that's the problem. So when we look at honor killings, there was that issue of, I don't know if you followed it in New York, there was that hoax uh, Islamophobia with this girl, was, with the hijab-wearing girl was saying yes. that, oh, three in, men in pushed her. In the subway, her. I think. Yeah, and everyone's talking about, oh, look, you know, she's uh, she's promoting Islamophobia, and it's, you know, and everyone's treating her like she's the sort of, um, you know, she's the aggressor in here, but actually she's the victim, in my opinion. And, it, and I don't think we should look at her as the aggressor. We should look at her as an 18-year-old girl who felt she had to lie so severely at such a level in order to escape what was going to be a punishment from her father if she missed her curfew. And if you saw her in court, what was it, a couple weeks or whatnot after, they shaved her head. They shaved her freaking head. And no one thought, well, maybe this is extreme. Maybe we should look at, you know, why this is happening. And they shaved her head because she was embracing a Western lifestyle and she had a boyfriend and she was out late. And so if you fast forward that and if that, subway hoax hadn't happened you fast forward that she'd gone and lived her own life at some point she probably would have broken away when she was financially independent that could have resulted in an honor killing and i feel like when we look at honor killings we're so well-intentioned but we don't look at the larger culture that enables this moment of death or this moment of cut i broadly agree once again this is going to be the most boring podcast because we're just going to agree all the time (laughs) But um, I just want to drill down a bit more to your fundamental argument. From from what I've heard is that you are saying that all right, the Quran predates this this Arabic tribal culture. So are you saying that Arabic tribal culture appropriated Islam, or no? Or Arab did tribal culture predated the Quran? Uh, predated the Quran. Sorry. All right. So now did. Uh, so I know, and I how can you say how can you how can you separate yeah. the two then? That's the problem. We need to, and it's not being separated. So there's and I, this isn't my quote. So somebody somewhere said something along this lines, where they were saying that Islam came in to change uh, Arab tribal culture, and Arab tribal culture ended up changing Islam, and so that's sort of the issue we're dealing with here. Right, and that goes on to my second question: Is it salvageable? Because it's been like this. Yeah. For, it's been like this for centuries. Right. Oh, hundred percent. Come uh, on. So, <laughs> I, so why is it salvageable? So, so why why is it how is it salvageable then? You salvage it by first of all, you know, I feel like we're in a really unique climate. We have social media, we have digital media, we have technology in a way that uh, warp speeds ideas and conversations in a way that was never possible before. That's step one, or that's the first part of it. The second part of it is that. In the past, anytime if you tried to say anything, you'd be killed for it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I protest. Boom, you're done. You know what I mean? So in the past, you never could really speak openly without getting crushed for it, without having 
to have inc- incredible privilege uh, and incredible access and and political power. So which is why in periods in the past, Islam with the Matizalites and whatnot, we had moments of really free inquiry and, and extreme freedom. But it was only when that sort of uh, those sort of thought leaders were reinforced by the political power. But every time political power shifts, we lost our grounding. So I feel like now we're the the entire sort of climate is so different. You know, we've got we've got technology. We've I've got an ability to talk to you. You're how many miles away? And I'm and then we're able to circulate that message to how many more people. So you really can't crush ideas the way that you could crush them in the past. And I really feel that the best ideas do win. I feel like truth can't be snuffed at. You can cover it, but you can never make it go away. And so technology makes it impossible to crush these ideas in the way that they've been crushed before. And secondly, we need political power. And I feel like, unfortunately, all the attacks around the world, in the West particularly, they're drawing so much magnified attention to these issues to the point where governments are coming together and realizing that we need to do something about this. And they're ready to sort of act and and work together or listen to different ideas. One of the articles I'm writing, or sorry, an essay I'm writing through America Matters is countering generational radicalization. And it took that four different ways we can tomorrow start putting into effect something that actually helps defeat the sort of ideology without even talking about, oh, you're bad for being a Muslim or you're bad for existing, but looking at it in a really creative ways. And that's able to happen because I'm able to be empowered through America Matters. And in a way that if I lived in 1200 something nowhere, I mean, who would listen to me? Who would care? And that goes for thousands of other people like myself. How do you, that, 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 that all may be true. And I I suppose it is true at some level that governments are moving that way. Um, I'm not sure what you feel about uh, Donald Trump and and how he's moving the conversation uh, for better or worse. Um, but it does seem that certainly in America and, and, and other parts of the West, and I use that not as a geographic term, but in places that adopt that kind of approach to, to their society, um, there's a, there's a fear of, of, of confronting these issues. You know, once again, you, you get called an Islamophobe. You can't say these things. Um, people take your words out of context and then run with it. Uh, there's, 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 there's all this kind of demonizing, uh, you, you know, you, you in the U.S. at the moment. So if you say anything that's slightly supportive of the current administration, you're a Nazi. Um, <laughs> if you don't run around screaming treason in the streets, um, then yeah. you know you're not a true progressive. Um, where where is the where are you moving the conversation forward in that? Do you see movement? Yeah, I love controversy. I love chaos. I mean, I feel like my entire life has on some level, always been chaotic and, and, uh, gosh, it's always been, there's always been movement and chaos to the point where I'm really, really comfortable in chaos. So when we see controversy and when we see chaos, I'm like, this is home for me. This is, this is, uh, you know, ground one. And I think what we can do in that is not react to it and not be so, uh, you know, hypersensitive and just look to see, okay, well, Trump's come in. And he's opened up a Pandora's box. And so whether you like him or you don't like him, you cannot deny that a Pandora's box has been opened, even through the controversial, uh, sometimes uncomfortable things that are said. It It is an opportunity for conversation. And so last year, when the entire election uh, process was going on, that was the first time, Jonathan, that in 10, 15, however many years I've been doing this, mm. that was the first time that I actually was able to get a platform because of the things that were being said, because of the dialogue that was able to be cultivated through the controversy. Why did it take someone like me 10 plus years to be at this point? That's it's that's unacceptable. And so the minute we have controversy, the minute we have hyper reaction, we can get in and we can start talking about these things because people are listening. Same thing with this countering generational radicalization uh, essay that I'm working on. There is a really fantastic idea that's going to get brought up in there. And it's being brought up because it is a a tomorrow solution for what's going on today. And nobody would have listened to it three years ago, five years ago. But because everyone's sort of looking at the same direction now and we're realizing, oh, my gosh, we have a problem. We the queen gave a speech about about these issues. When does the queen give a speech about these issues? Right. (laughs) So, I mean, when (laughs) when you've got everyone looking the same direction, we can start 
actually coming together. But when it comes to the, uh, you know, you were seeing running in the streets and, and screaming hysteria, that's natural. You know, I had uh, Shreen Tibber, a really good colleague and friend of mine, she was saying that whenever you have an opportunity for change and an opportunity for growth and development, evolution of consciousnesses, which is what I what I really feel that we're doing right now is, is evolving our consciousness. Whenever you have an opportunity for that, you're going to have the sort of the, the labor pains, the birthing pains. You're going to have shrieks and screams and people are going to be freaking out and it's a mess and no one knows what's happening. But, you know, that's part of the process. And so you can't get to this this better tomorrow until we sort of get through the gauntlet of what is today. And it's completely a natural process for me. Let's uh, quickly delve into this idea of the generational issues because you're involved with this sort of FGM um trial that's that's going to be going on in the u.s uh I, i'm not sure of of actual honor killings which have taken place in the u.s i don't know if that's if that's widespread but we do now know that fgm is not something that you just see in somalia or you know uh, some uh, asian country it's happening in the united states of america in states that would call themselves actually progressive states um so what what is it uh, that's causing this to happen? And uh, from what I can understand, amongst people who are uh, born Americans. So just you know, just because you're born American doesn't mean you are embracing what it means to really be American. And for me, America is not just a territory; it's not a landmass; it's an idea, and it's a very universal idea. And so, when you are born into this thing, you're not you know you're not automatically shaped and, and labeled as you're not programmed to have the same values. And that's something that has to be taught and cultivated and fought for every single day and, 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 you know, championed every single day. And so when you grow up in this sort of border and with this sort of certificate that says you're American, that's not enough. That doesn't cut it. America is, is a mindset. And so when you're raised in a community that teaches you that you're different, that your Muslimness comes before your Americanness or your Muslimness comes before someone else's right to be a human being. That's where these problems start coming into play, that there's a sort of mentality of division. And when it comes to, you know, larger issues like FGM, this is where our laws really need to come into place. So we've got activism, we've got uh, engagement and, and campaigning, which is what I do and what others like myself do to raise awareness. But ultimately, that ends with our legal system. So Maine, for example, and I believe it was Minnesota, they both fell short of passing uh, an FGM law that would give prosecutors more tools to really pursue these cases. And what happened is politicians did what politicians do, which is they kind of passed the law, but not really. They passed it enough so they can feel good about themselves because there's more education and outreach now, but they fell short of actually being able to do something about it. So when you, felt, when you fall short of being able to prosecute these cases, you know, at the full extent of the law with the full tools that you need to do this, what you're telling immigrant communities and, and communities that come from immigration is that these are really nice ideas, but these are just suggestions. You don't really have to follow the law. And so we have to underscore our values with our, with our legal system. So Michigan just passed a law uh, in support of the, you know, of, of banning FGM really fully. And I feel like Detroit is really going to be that landmark case because it's drawing attention nationally to an issue that is here. And I don't know if you've read the account of a little seven-year-old girl who was brought in by her family. No. So if you go to New York Times, Women in the World, and you just Google my name with it, you'll see a couple articles I wrote on it. And the first one is really devastating because, and it was a hard piece to write, because the case, the case initially cracked open because two girls were brought in by their own parents to a doctor who was born here, raised uh, raised here, and went to Johns Hopkins, which is one of the best universe, best medical schools in the U.S., if not maybe the world. Yeah, and she's still, you know, it's it's still the sort of back alley sort of treatment to to put this through another girl or put another girl through this. So when you read the account of the seven year old girl, right? So she she gets asked what happened. She doesn't even know about sexuality. I mean, I have a six year old. He barely knows he's a boy. And so when you're you're subjecting this little girl to this horrific sexual sort of violence you're asking her then after the fact like well what happened so the little girl oh my gosh it's heart crushing she was saying that her tummy was hurting so her mommy brought her to the doctor and they pinched her down there that's all she knows about this 
She has no concept of what's been taken away from her. And if you've watched Handmaid's Tale on whatever channel that is, that show that's come out, that remake of the book, The Handmaid's Tale, there is one of the characters who had FGM performed on her because she was, uh, she was a lesbian. And so she was, you know, not falling into rank and file into the new system work. And so we had so many leftists and not liberals. I want to distinguish between liberals and leftists. You had so many leftists saying that, oh, you know, it was such a horrific thing. She had this happen to her. I'm like, what's happened? This is not some sort of fantasy story that you can feel comfortable about for an hour on the couch eating potato chips. Like this is going on right now. So if you actually give a shit, like this is going on right now, you can do something about it. But no, we, they, all the people do is turn off the TV and get back to their own little, like, you know, selfie world of whatever, whatever. And it's forgotten about. There's also another problem in, in the U.S. Um, well, not specifically in the U.S., but, but, but arrogance is, is a problem in most places, I'm afraid. Um, and it comes to a point where someone like Linda Sassoor, who is a, an extremely dangerous propagandist who, who loves Sharia law, who praises Saudi Arabia for giving their women 10 months of maternity leave for jobs they don't have at all because they can't drive there. <laughs> um, but she's, she's seen as, as this feminist hero by yeah. a lot of people and, and she probably detests you and she detests Ayan Hirsi Ali and people who actually want to make a difference. Um, I mean, what is that phenomenon? She came out of, out of nowhere and now she's leading the woman movement against Trump with a, with a, <laughs> a hijab made from the American flag. It's, it's, it's postmodern ridiculous. Surreal. Yeah. You know, dangerous propaganda is the best way I've described, I've ever heard her being described. She can thank Trump for her career launch because she was largely sort of, okay, a figure in, in, around, but she wasn't a national, name until uh, Trump came into play. So she probably should send him a thank you note for launching her career. But when it comes to Linda Sarsour, most, a lot of people don't actually know what she's about. So I have a cousin who I love dearly. He was a proud supporter of um, the Women's March. And she didn't even know that one of the women leading it and organizing it is this Sarsour character and everything she stands for. And so there, that's one case. I had another story where I heard where um, uh, an 18, 19-year-old Muslim aspiring journalist, all she knew about Kara and Sarsour were that they were civil rights leaders. There's no, you know, people are comfortable with the label of, okay, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, but they don't actually look to see, well, just because they've embraced the label, what does it actually mean? And I, and I invite people to do the same thing with anyone. So if I'm a reformer, what does it actually mean? And they don't do that with people at large. So people like Sarsour, fall under the cracks. People like Imam Tweedy fall under the cracks because people just believe whatever label they assign themselves without, I mean, that's like saying I'm president of the United States and I expect you to believe me because I said so. And that's literally how moronic these, these, uh, these belief systems are and how we treat people. The thing with Sarsour is the loudest voice wins right now. If you're a loud voice, oh, this is my basically Fobby character coming through my V's and W's get mixed up. If you are a loud voice, you will win. And that's the the sort of thematic um, system that's set up right now is that if you want to be heard, you need to be yelling and screaming and and, and being aggressive. Linda's are sore. The most offensive thing about her to me is that she is she's a thug and she comes across as a typical Middle Eastern dictator with her body language and her mannerisms. And it's like this this 80 year old, like, you know, tyrant in, in God knows where in the body of uh of, of an American Palestinian woman. And so everything she says is so aggressive and so hostile. And because we're in a climate of just um, embracing the loudest voice and thinking that because you're yelling and screaming, and this is what we've seen after President Trump won the election, is just because you scream and you hold a sign doesn't mean you actually have an argument. Doesn't mean your argument has been vetted. Doesn't mean your argument has been tested. When it goes to Sarsour, the issue with her is she's not even a scholar in Islam. She hasn't studied the faith and she admits this. And yet she's somehow championing what it means to be a Muslim. And I don't really understand how that is the case with her. I think I disagree with you on this particular point. Um, I, I don't think. Oh, finally. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, just because she's loud, I don't think it means that people think she's right. I think the fact that she can wear a hijab and speak freely as a you know, quoted Muslim woman, a lot of people see her as a reformer. 
or a lot of people see her as an archetypical Muslim female because they are too ignorant of that fact. So that goes, yeah, it's not just a question sorry, of loudness. Sorry, it's not just a question of loudness. It's a question of a perception amongst her mm-hmm. supporters. Hundred percent. And let's go back to that. I mean, that goes back to glamorizing uh, and monopolizing what it means to be Muslim. So when we have we had Erdogan, for example, about a month or so ago, that went and railed against Israel for occupying the Middle East for 1400 or however many what statement he had, something along those lines, where he is railing against Israel for occupying what's considered a Muslim land. And I think let's look at a bigger issue of what else is occupying what is meant to be Muslim or what is meant to be Islam? And that at large is a lot of the liberal or leftist media. So when they glamorize the hijab, when we've got cover girls that are cover girls just because they wear a hijab, we've got women's rights leaders as women's rights leaders just because they wear a hijab. We've got uh, even the even the uh, the rally, the poster with the American girl, the, the girl wearing the American flag hijab. Is that what it means to be Muslim? So those ideas are monopolizing my identity and my faith, but because it's saying that because I look like this, I'm not a legitimate Muslim. Because I don't wear a hijab, I must not be a legitimate Muslim. If you Google, if you Google stock photos of Muslims, it's all the same. Pious, scarf wearing, the same thing with every time you see an article about Muslims, it's the Muslim hijabi person. And I'm just like, that's where the responsibility falls on the media. If you have, if you don't like, the monopolization of the faith if you don't like the the extremism that's that's being bred even now then you have a duty to maybe not portray us all as being uh scarf wearers okay uh, ramon are you happy uh, happy with that um you mentioned uh, since we're since we're railing a bit um you mentioned uh, imam tawidi uh for the listeners that don't know he's an australian imam uh who has come out quite strongly against many sort of Islamic principles. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 from what I understand, there's some people who kind of buy what he's selling and some people feel that he's uh, not being entirely genuine. What's your issue with him? Here's who's not buying what he's saying are Muslims. And so I need to send Imam Tawidi a thank you card because he's done what no one else has really been able to do, which is unite Muslims. And so as a reformer, I'm typically challenged for being, you know, more conservative sometimes. But I've had traditionalists, apologists, I've had closet uh, Muslims, I've had every single kind of Muslim message me privately and thank me for speaking out against Imam Tawidi. And here's why I do it. Because in my view, I'm not saying he's not a Muslim, because that's not my right to say So that's not even the conversation here. But in my view, he's a charlatan in terms of what he says he stands for and his rhetoric. And I've never, ever felt the need to use this phrase on anyone ever until he came in the picture. His rhetoric is so outright anti-Islam. He's literally telling us that we are bad for being Muslim. And when you have this sort of blanket, lazy rhetoric, and he's meant to be a scholar, which, by the way, is contested by the school that he says he is this that he got his degree from they're saying he never even got it but that's not the point because you can still be a scholarly person but if you are a scholarly person you know better than to talk about islam and talk about muslims in this in this blanket terminology which is just flat out not true when we look and study the faith we know there is such a nuanced conversation that needs to take place so when you come forward and you're using the rhetoric that anti-islam people who are anti-Islam use, how are you really any different? Just because you're a mullah savior who came, who looks like he came out from the 14th century doesn't mean you're a legitimate uh, a sort of uh, individual who can assess the situation and move forward in a way that brings people together. He's actually a sectarian, divisive character. The language he uses is against Sunnis. He, just because Dr. Zudi Jasser, who's another reformer, didn't support him, and and I challenged him, he says that his claim is that we are a Sunni clique. I'm not even a Sunni. None of us could actually care what you are. What we care is the sort of reading between the lines of what you say. And so while there are a lot of people who are loving what he says, because it sounds exactly like what they would say, the issue is, as someone who, you know, who's been doing this work for so long, as is Dr. Drosser, the question is, what are his ideas actually? And we actually haven't seen anything. He hasn't produced any any sort of writing. He's been on this media parade trying to get every single piece of attention he can. And he actually hasn't produced anything of value that we can evaluate his ideas. 
All we have to go off of to evaluate his ideas is what he says, which is divisive and sectarian and aggressive and flat out. If we want to look at what is anti-Islamic, he is an anti-Islamic figure in the sense that he uh, takes, you know, he uses his position to have the most the most lazy, generic, sloppy conversations about problems today. And um, well, here's a few ideas on Twitter at least. And basically it's, it's along the lines of create a police state. Um, mosques have to be, you know, authorized. You need a special license and a, you need to audit who visits and what ideas are spoken about. So it sounds like a real fascistic authoritarian type of state he wants. And the one question I asked him on Twitter, which he didn't respond, of course, it says, and I said, if you're so anti-Islam, why are you still Islamic? Why are you still a Muslim? What what mm-hmm. benefit do you get from it? Because you describe it as the most evil, oppressive, patriarchal system. So why are you still a Muslim? And he didn't answer, of course. But my question to you, and I think I, I think I know the answer. Um, why are you why are you a Muslim? I know you grew up in the faith, and I, I don't doubt your faith, but and you think it's worth saving. Sorry, it's a very long question. Um, but why why try? What what value do you get from it? So, and I'm really grateful you asked me that question because it's not a question that I get to answer very often. No, it doesn't really get asked. So when I started exploring the faith and really delved into it, I was not comfortable with what I found. I was really not comfortable. The, when you first sort of crack open the book and you take your first glance at something, and even the first book that I wrote, which went into a bidding war with three different publishers it's your initial reaction, your initial work, your initial everything when you first sort of open your eyes up. It's it's um, it's just your first reaction. It's it's your initial knee jerk response to what you're finding out. And it's usually crap, which is why I threw the book away. And I, you know, and I just went back into the the work and into studying the communities and into studying the faith and into just growing up a little bit more. This was when I was in my early 20s and now I'm in my mid 30s just growing up and really sort of having the chance to think about these things. And so what I did in the first few years is 100% lived the life of a pauper and threw myself into faith 100% into sort of everything that I could possibly experience and learn at the same time. And as a result, uh, first thing I did is I found Sufism, which is the mystical branch of Islam. And I feel like it's so tragic that Afghanistan has a rich tradition of Sufism and so does Pakistan through through India, but I didn't even know Sufism existed. Sufism is actually not even officially recognized as a legit uh, faction within the faith in Pakistan itself. So I didn't even know these these ideas of this this branch existed. And when I found Sufism, I felt more at home because it it mirrored my philosophy that the divine is here and now the divine isn't just some this afterlife of like magical fairyland. It's something that we can experience here and now, and, and even in something as simple as how I treat another human being, there's a divinity in that, there's a divinity in us. And so that's one reason I stayed with it, is because I found a piece of home in Sufism. And the other reason is because as I really studied the faith more, I realized that the the sort of reaction we have right now is the rash, it's not the symptoms. We're dealing with the, the reaction, the rash is what we're seeing. And so for me, and maybe it's because I'm a romantic at heart, and maybe it's because I'm an optimist, I'm not going to abandon something just because I have some sort of conflict with it. I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to give it 100% and try to figure it out. And I found that it is salvageable, because if you go back to the the original message and the original sort of spirit of what Islam is supposed to be, the collectivism that it does offer mankind and what it can offer a future world of people, as long as we underscore that first with individualism, there is potential there. And ultimately, we have how many million, billion of Muslim, billion Muslims right now? Those Muslims, I just, even though I may never know them, obviously I could never know them, but I just can't abandon them. I can't abandon someone just because I personally would feel more comfortable with something else, which is no identity and no label at all. I would rather be first and foremost a human being. But ultimately, I feel like I was born into this for a reason. I was born into my family for a reason. I was born into these experiences of, of mass migration and conflict and complete chaos nonstop for a reason so that I could be here today and navigate what is a chaotic time with compassion and dignity and respect for humankind. 
Sure, thanks. That's a nice comprehensive answer. Just uh, we need to wrap up. I, I just want to know because there's a lot said on social media and certainly on the media itself, the so-called fake news, um, <laughs> that uh, we would have us believe that you are now living in a entirely oppressive society um, that you need to fight against that you walk down the street and um, you have a really difficult time of your life. So what's it like being a, a Muslim in America? Um, is there, do you feel that there is um, a lot of prejudice? Is it, is there an undercurrent or is it overt? Uh, and uh, do, do you really believe that it's gotten much worse with someone like Donald Trump in the white house? A couple of answers to that. The first and foremost challenges I've received isn't from the average American. It's from my own family. I went through hell with my family when I started questioning the faith. And even though I didn't leave it, the same sort of pattern of behavior that happens in an honor killing happened in my family. You're, you're shunned. You're treated like you're nothing. The very people who know you and who you love the most more than anything in the world abandon you. And, and not, worse than that, they turn against you. So that's not just exclusive to me. That happens to tons of people who've gone through this experience. Mm. The second set are other Muslims. The process of, you know, uh, tag teaming and bullying a person who's outspoken. Care is number one in doing that. The process of stalking someone just because they are, you know, a Muslim free thinker. That's happening too. So the, the aggression I get is first and foremost from those fringe pools of, of Muslim communities that are Islamist or they're uh, fundamentalist in some way. But largely as an American society and as a Western society, I don't buy the whole Islamophobia thing. It's not a phobia. It's a, it's a serious frustration and a serious concern of what's going on. And so the story, if I have time for a quick little story, yeah, is when, when, I, when I sort of left law school and I needed to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and find a way to make money, I opened up a tutoring center. And one of my parents was this amazing adorable mom, like four foot 11 Korean mom who brought like cakes every day, like the kindest woman on earth, right? Despite her two challenging children. And Daniel Pearl got beheaded and she comes into me and she knew I was kind of exploring these issues. And she comes into me and we have our first serious conversation. And she says, Shereen, like, why did this happen? And I'm trying to explain to her and she's just so frustrated. And she very calmly said, we should just bomb them all. This is a four foot 11 Korean woman who brings cakes every day, who has the patience of a saint with her two challenging uh, children. And she is at a point then to say, let's just bomb them all. People are human. People are frustrated. The more you tell someone a problem doesn't exist, eight years of Obama saying the problem doesn't exist. Islam is peace when Islam is both peace and war. You are creating an environment where people are going absolutely mad. If you have a chance, check out Griselda Gambaro. She's a South American playwright. Check out her uh, play called The Camp. And that's a perfect example of what's going on in the West right now, when we keep telling people this is not Islam, this is not uh, what it means to be Muslim, when actually there is a duality in Islam. And Prophet Muhammad said that duality. So we need to be able to talk about it. And the more you say no, the more you're going to see a backlash. And that's just the reality of it. Well, that's. Uh, I think we should leave it there. That's a superb way to, to end. All I hear is be honest and and speak the truth and have, have enlightened conversation. Um I don't know if anyone would disagree with that unless they are afraid of triggers and microaggressions, but those are idiots, so we don't care. <laughs> um, Shireen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it uh, and for giving thank us you. giving us your views, um, some very refreshing stuff to hear and, and some perspectives I, I haven't heard before, even though I'm, I'm quite interested in this topic. Thank is, you so much. Is there obviously you can you can find Shireen on Twitter, um, but is there anywhere else uh, you you want us to find your your work and and in your organization? Yeah, so go to americamatters.com and if you go to latest news, I have tons of blog posts that I put up there that offer a more empathetic approach to a lot of these issues. And Twitter, of course, is great, and Facebook would be fantastic as well. Perfect. Uh, did I pronounce your surname right at the at the beginning? What was it? Kudosi. What did you say? Uh, yeah, you're good. Well, there yeah. we go. Um, so you can find Shireen on Twitter. Um, that's at Shireen Kudosi. Uh, that's Q-U-D-O-S-I. Uh, and all the other places she's mentioned. Facebook as well. Search for the same thing. Um, thank you so much for joining our show. Uh, Ramon, that's uh, the end of another good show for the week. Well, we'll see how good it is when people tell us it's good, of course. We can't uh, be judge, jury, and 
critic at the same time. Uh, well, that won't stop me for one second. I mean, I, I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> you, can, uh, you, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports, also on Facebook. You're welcome to join our group where we have discussions on the shows uh, that we do, as well as all kinds of related topics. And if you really like us, uh, consider a donation on Patreon. Yeah, we're on Patreon. We are funding the podcast ourselves, as many uh, uh, sort of creators do. But we hope uh, you would uh, share some of your dollars with us, especially to our American listeners. Uh, we will take them happily. Go uh, do a quick Google search on the Rand, which is our currency. Your dollars buy us many of those. Um, thanks to our idiot president, who is far worse than Donald Trump, I can assure you. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.